listening to First Church Charlotte. And we're glad to see all of you in the house of the Lord today. I hope you're having a great fall. It's a beautiful fall. Uh, There's a lot of things to be thankful for, a lot of reasons for you to be thankful. Uh, I'm sure there's reasons for you to be miserable, too, if you want to find those reasons and celebrate them. But a better plan would be for all of us to think about the many reasons we have to be thankful. Can I have a big amen? God's been good to me. I wonder if you might say that with me here this morning. Get your best preacher voice. You ready for your best preacher voice? God's been good to me. Mm. I like that. I like that. I like that. I think we might should try it. This side was louder than y'all. Y'all, they won that one. So we're going to, since we're having contests nowadays, we're going to have, we're going to do it one more time. Best preacher voice. That's what I'm talking about. See, here we go. Three, two, one. God's been good to me. Maha. Amen. Start a new series today uh, entitled Soul Survivor. And the idea behind it is the care of our souls. I've spent uh, the last couple of weeks thinking about this a good bit. And I think we rush past it as individual believers and as church people. I think we rush past the care of our soul. I think within Christian community, uh, we work hard to have healthy spirit. Uh, Sometimes um, our uh, spirit more enthusiastical, more exciting. Uh, Soul is a different feel. Now I know in language, we're speaking in, in some ways about the same thing, in some ways not. But I, I want you to think of your soul in this way. Spirit is enthusiasm and excitement, but your soul is that part of you. Um, uh, yes, it's eternal. Yes, it reflects the God-breathed part of you. But in your lived day-to-day experience, you need to be able to say, it is well with my soul. You, you understand what I mean when I say that? I hope you do. I really want to. I want to make sense. I don't want to just yell at you. <laughs> it is well with my soul. Now, if I go to church and they sing my song, you know you know how it is when they, they sing your song? You go to church like, my God, that's my song. Um, that, that, that We think of that as spirit. You know, man, I felt the spirit today. But in the middle of the storm, you're not going to be bebopping with the band in the middle of your storm. You're going to have to be able to review the real environment you are stuck with, and you're going to have to be able to say, it is well with my soul. When I get the job I wanted, it's well with my soul. When I don't get the job I wanted, it's well with my soul. That willingness to be spiritually okay. In all manner of circumstances, we have to cultivate that because being spiritually okay in the midst of confusion is part of the testimony of the church. And if the church falls apart under pressure, um, it wasn't very strong, was it? Um, I have nothing but compliments for uh, the church in this crazy year of 2020. Uh, We have had difficulty after difficulty, scare after scare, and the church is still strong. 
I want to say thank you to all of you who are committed to the church. You're committed to your brothers and sisters. You're committed to the mission. Those of you who, because of health considerations and fears, are being extra careful, um, I want you to know that we do not begrudge you that at all. Uh, If you have special health considerations, uh, it's appropriate for you to be careful. But many of you are supporting this church by watching faithfully, uh, by sending in your your offerings, your tithing. I want you to know we see you and we're thankful for you. And I speak God's blessing in your life. Can I have a big amen? All right. I am going to take a few Sundays on this soul survivor. I'm going to talk about various things. And today I'm introducing a series. And as you often know, a lot of times when we introduce a series, it takes a Sunday to kind of get everyone in a framework of spiritual learning and biblical study. Uh, And so a lot of times as a preacher or as a communicator, the first series, the first sermon of the series can feel the most difficult because a lot of times we're kind of getting uh, ourselves oriented in a scriptural framework. And so uh, our theme text for this series is going to be from Proverbs chapter number four, verse number 23. Uh, And the scripture, many of you could quote this, keep your heart with all vigilance, or as some translations say, with all diligence. Why would we do that? Here's why. For from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance because from your heart flows the springs of life. Um, Our heart is the very essence of our being. If we are to be eternal beings, there is that which must outlive the flesh and the mortal must put on immortality. This is foundational Christian uh, theology. The mortal puts on immortality through the gift of God, uh, and that is we would not have access to eternal life except through the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, But he, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it dwells in you, that same spirit will quicken your mortal body. And we who are mortal put on, hallelujah, immortality. That eternal part of us, you'll often find language in the scripture that refers to it as our heart. Um, in a more modern age, we think of our mind, not our brain, our mind. Um, our mind, who we are, and that eternal part of us uh, that feels much longer and uh, deeper and broader and wider than just the years that we have been given. This is the very thing that the Bible referred to as your heart. Now, uh, we might say one to another something like this, well, only God can keep my heart. Uh, And I understand what you mean by that. I I, I think I do anyway. Um, But I want to challenge that view with uh, this uh, realization. Imagine a farmer uh, standing over his fields and saying, I'm done working on you. I'm done weeding you. I'm done plowing. I'm done planting. Whatever God wants to grow, that's what's going to grow. 
Well, now, if this farmer did that, what would happen would uh, a forest would grow, a, a, a prairie would grow, and he would be a very poor and soon a very hungry farmer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, that farmer must take something that, yes, God created, and yes, God uh, spoke from nothingness into existence, but now that farmer has to decide what's going to be planted, what we're going to take out and what we're going to put in. So it is with your heart. God will not force his presence upon your heart, do you see? God will not dominate you. You must respond to his gentle call and you must submit yourself to his spirit uh, that you might have your heart, your life, your mind transformed by the power of God. Can I have another big amen? So the farmer must choose how to cultivate the farm. This is the example Jesus will use to teach all of us what it means to keep our heart. Uh, There are things that we take out and there are things that we put in. We are responsible for the care of our heart. If we do not care for it, it will grow of its own nature. It will not be that which we choose, but it'll be that which is accidental to us. It's possible for us to live spiritually unintentional lives. We want to be spiritual, but we won't cultivate our heart. I'm preaching to some people here today. I know I'm making you think a little bit, but this is foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We want to be religious, but we won't keep our heart. You must keep your heart. John uh, Flavel wrote a book called Keeping the Heart in which he says this, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart of God. Uh, The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart of God. And so through grace, our sins are washed away and we are filled with God's presence. We become, as the Apostle Paul would say, we become partakers of what? The divine nature. We are no longer simply our own creation of circumstance, inheritance, culture, habits, hobbies, etc. We now have birthed within us a new nature that inclines us away from this world and toward the things of God. This new nature makes us care about things that our flesh didn't care about before. This new nature makes us want to live in a manner that is a blessing to the world, a blessing to our families, not a curse to the world or a curse to our families. This new nature is placed within us and we have an opportunity to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know I'm covering a lot of rather theological things here quickly, but I I think there's some value to where I'm trying to take you today. We must keep our heart. Now, it's natural for us to uh, hide the real us. I don't say that in in the manner that you're fake. Now, you may be fake, but that's a different problem. (laughs) It's natural for us to hide the real us. It's possible that um, I, in my flesh, in myself, struggled all morning. And it's possible that in myself, I struggled with disappointment or pain, and yet I'm up here and I'm hiding that from you. That doesn't make me a bad person. 
Now, I'm not saying I did or I was. I'm trying to make a point here. Now, having done it to me, let me do it to you. It's possible that you had to make yourself come to church here today. It's possible that your life in many ways seems like it's falling apart. And if you were just to survey your flesh, you would say truthfully to yourself, I don't know what the point is. I don't even know why I'm trying. I'm just this and not that. I'm just you see what I'm saying. But you came here today and you didn't come to the front door and meet the greeter. Praise the Lord. I just want all of you to know in my heart, I'm still at the club. None of you came into church that way. None of you came into the church and when you saw your brother said, hey, praise God. Just so you know, I'm hung over on the inside. Uh, you didn't do that. Why? Because there's the part of you that it makes sense to share, and there's the part of you that it just, just doesn't make sense to share. Now, this is fine when one with another, because truthfully, there's a lot of your problems I can't fix anyway. I can uh, encourage you. I can even love you. I can try to support you, but I can't fix that stuff because I'm not living with you. You're crazy. Yeah. And you feel the same way about me. You solve problems different than me. Your gifts are different than me. The way you learn is different than me. The way you make it through tough times is different than me. I will make you crazy. And so there's this natural response, uh, even appropriate response for us in some regards, to hide the real us from the us we put forward. And you get religious people together, and they fall into the natural ways of hiding part of themselves and revealing part of themselves, and soon you end up with religious culture. Soon you end up with church culture. Soon you end up with virtue signaling one to another. Soon you earn, end up with righteousness competitions. Soon you end up with I'm right and you're wrong. Soon you end up with I'm going to heaven and you're busting it wide open. Now in our case that's true. No, I'm just having fun. You you see how this this tendency within us is to make religious life serve us, not us serve God. I just laid a whole pile of deep thought upon you right there. The natural reality is us to end up in a so-called relationship with God where we make church culture, church life, religious culture, religious life serve our needs rather than us living a life of pursuing the heart of God, seeking to know him, having fundamental to our spiritual way the, act, the, the, the action of asking and seeking and knocking. And instead, we get into this religiosity type form work whereby I'm okay, you're okay, we're here. I'm not going to tell you what's really going on. I'm not going to tell you about the problem I'm having with temptation in my life. I'm not going to tell you about the problem I've been having with the secret stuff that's in my closet. I'm not really going to tell you about the fact that I haven't liked you for some 18 months when you said what you said that you know who when you know when. That's the real me. But I'm not talking about all that. I'm just going to church and I'm going to let the church culture serve me and my needs. I'm not going to seek, ask, and knock. I'm not going to pursue. I'm not going to hunger and thirst after God more than anything else. But I want you to know right now, Jesus Christ did not invite us to religious culture. He invited us to pursue his presence. 
And if we get in the habit of religious culture rather than the lifestyle of pursuing the presence of God above everything else, we may have religion, but we will have missed the call of Jesus Christ in our life. And so no one shows this better, really, scripturally, than the story of the house of Israel losing their way in their following of God. Uh, The uh, calling that was upon them through their father Abraham, the blessings that were upon them through the covenant of God, all of that was beautiful and good and and wonderful. They had law, they had covenant, they had blessing, they had systems of worship, uh, but they soon turned it to the needs of themselves and they lost a heart for God. What was it that David had that absolutely smote the heart of God? It was David's heart after God. David wasn't particularly righteous. David wasn't particularly sin-free. I want you to hear me today. I'm trying to trying to take us somewhere. Uh, not just you, but starting with me. Uh, David was not particularly sin-free. Uh, in many ways, his sins were ugly. David was not particularly righteous. He wasn't particularly good. What was it that David had? He had a heart that pursued a relationship with God. And this so smote the heart of the Lord. And it so moved God, that God made a commitment to David, and I will bring a redeemer through you. He will be your son. It will be the key of David. What do you mean the key of David? What was unique to David? Was it his righteousness? No. I'm not saying unrighteousness is okay. I want you to see priorities and spiritual uh, themes and foundations here. What was unique about David? His passion for the presence of God in his life. His desire not to have a form, not to have a habit, not to have a religion, but to have a real worshipful relationship with God. Come on, somebody. Anybody here want to have that kind of relationship with God? Anybody here desire to know him? Anybody here hunger and thirst after righteousness? And so uh, you see in the house of Israel, they had all of this. They had law. They had covenant. They had clear rules of how to please God and how to irritate God. (laughs) They had clear rules of how to represent the kingdom and how to embarrass the kingdom. They had ceremonial laws of identity that made them unique among the peoples of the earth. They also had moral laws of rightness, righteousness, whereby if they did not follow, their very lives became a shame to the God they claimed to serve. They had all of this, and they lost their way. They lost their way. And their religion, even though they were more zealous with it than almost any of us, and more careful with it than almost any of us, they lost their way. And so God began to send them prophets. And the prophets came, and he, the prophets' messages were basically various versions of this. You have a religion. You have a form of worship, but your heart's not in it. You have a system. You have this kind of, you know when to clap, you know when to shout, you know how to say amen, but your heart is not in it. Uh, And that was the message repeated over and over and over. You're following God in surface things, but you're missing the heart of relationship. You're following God in observances and um, in, in kind of rules, but you've missed the heart of it. And so nobody expresses this better than the prophet Malachi. Um, in his uh, seven, seven complaints that he speaks to the people of God on behalf of the Lord, and he gives them the seven complaints uh, that the Lord has against them. All of them are related to the problem of the heart. 
Let me say it to this side of the church. All of them are related to the problem of the heart. Their problem has not been law. The problem has not been duty. The problem has not been order. The problem has not been covenant. The problem has been their heart is for themselves, while in outward observances, they say they are for the Lord. This theme is going to happen over and over and over, and it's the very same problem that the Lord spoke to Samuel about when it king was going to be chosen in 1 Samuel 16, verse number 7, and the Lord cautions the prophet and says uh, not to look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks on the heart. The eye of the Lord is not fixed on our system. The, li- the eye of the Lord is fixed on our heart. Do I need to say it again? Thank you very much. I think I do. The Lord's heart eye is not on our systems, our habits, our styles. The eye of the Lord is focused upon our heart. And we are implored to keep our hearts. We are implored to keep our hearts. And here's the thing. Uh, We have to keep our hearts through all the seasons of our life. There's a certain set of trials that will come in one generation, and the next generation may have a different set of trials. We have to keep our hearts despite the storm. If you're a teenager, we have some of our teenagers here today, there'll be a certain set of temptations and trials when you're a teenager. Uh, and all of us who have been teenagers, we are here to say it can, be, it can feel impossible even. It can be very, very hard. But the trials in your 20s will be different than the trials as a teenager. Uh, and it's even more complicated than that, that uh, sometimes uh, people can do well and be zealous for the Lord of their teenagers years, but in their 20s as a single person without uh, having to serve God by choice because uh, no one's paying the bills for them anymore. No one's deciding what they're going to do. No one's saying you have to go to church and they're alone. And in your 20s, you have to decide, I'm going to serve the Lord. And sometimes the 20s push into the 30s and there's no one making you do it. You could stay at home. You could sleep in different set of trials, different set of fears, different set of struggles. We can't just be zealous as teenagers and then drop off in our 20s. We can't just be zealous in our 20s and then drop off in our 30s. We can't be strong as singles and then lose our way as parents when we have children. I've seen it happen over and over again. I've seen people who were zealous as even as single adults. And uh, when they got married, they kept their zealous. But once they had kids, it's like their life became their kids and church became an obligation. That's one of the kind of trials that all of us will have. Uh, other people, uh, they, 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 once they had kids, uh, it was easy for them to serve God. They, they turned into overnight Christians once they had kids. But when they were teenagers and when they were single adults, holy moly, they danced at every club in town. Um, they, different trials, different people. And then there's people like some of you and you've struggled at every stage of life. That's funny. You didn't laugh. I don't even care. I'm laughing on the inside. Uh, we all of us have to make it through the seasons of our life. It won't. I've, I, honestly, I've seen people make it through so many things, uh, and then something happens, and they just eh, it's, it's uh, somehow they are disconnected. The form of of religion was not enough to keep them. We have to keep our hearts. Why? Out of our heart is that which is flowing. It is the springs of life. Even God, when he wants you to be transformed, has to transform your heart. Even God has to transform your heart. 
You must experience life and more abundantly. It must happen to you. You say, oh, but I'm tired of being in college and I just have no joy because all my life I'm in school nonstop. Okay, we have to find a way for you to experience the presence of God right where you are. Other people are like, well, I'm the only person in my school that I know that uh, is really trying to to serve the Lord. First of all, that's not true. It's not fair, but I know how it feels because I felt that way too at times. Um, So uh, we have to find a way for you not to fix your context, but to fix your heart. See, that's some fine preaching right there. That's some, that, that, that is fundamental to what the prophets are going to say to the house of Israel. You have this system, this form, this style, but the problem is not the system. It's not the law. It's not the covenant. The problem is the problem of the heart. You must keep your heart. So really quickly, the Lord makes seven complaints against the people of Israel and all of them, all of them. All of them have to do with the problem of the heart. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Uh, I don't, uh, I, I'm not going to, pro, pro, I'm probably not going to take a lot of time on them, um, but I want to give them to you so you can see how each of them is a problem of the heart. The first one is the profaning of spiritual things. There was a day when they trembled at the house of the Lord, and now they can treat it like just another day. They have profaned the spiritual things. Uh, another thing they have done is sacrilege which is uh, the outward appearance. They have this outward appearance of being right. Uh, And they're letting people think they're right. But on the inside, they have missed the heart of it all. And so their sacrifices are not their best. Their sacrifices are good enough for them to be accepted by other religious people. And this is the exact complaint the Lord makes against them. They are offering to God imperfect sacrifices and keeping the best for themselves. They are gaming the system. This is spiritual sacrilege. The third thing they're doing is greed. Uh, Greed. Now this is directed toward leadership, uh, spiritual leadership. And the Lord says, you've made a business out of holy things. Uh, I want to speak for all of the leadership of this church and speak for all of the pastoral staff of this church. We can never treat the house of God as though it's simply a career or simply a venture, profit or non-profit. It must be more than a business it is a calling the fifth thing that you will see Jesus point or the Lord points out through the prophet Malachi is uh, shown to us is weariness of service you're just going through a rut you've lost the joy of it all and you're going through a rut and this is something we as church people are uh, we, we, we can we, we fail here more than we want to admit um, we get burnt out and we don't commit to spiritual restoration I want to confess that I've been guilty of this myself for myself. I've kept grinding when I needed to take a break. I've kept fighting when I needed to sit and wait upon the Lord. And so have all of you. I know what it feels like to be burnt out. Some of you uh, know what it feels like to be burnt out. And I have uh, a couple times in my ministry made what I believe to be a mistake. And I've talked people in to keeping working when they needed to take a break. And I 
have learned a bitter lesson uh, in my own life because it has always almost destroyed them. Uh, I don't want us to be a church where we serve out of weariness, duty, and law. It's either worship or we have missed something fundamental to our relationship with God. And then three things that uh, are all also heart issues. So first we had the profaning of spiritual things, sacrilege, greed, weariness in well-doing, and treason against heaven, theft against God, and blasphemy against God. The treason of heaven, the theft against God, and blasphemy. Very quickly, just so you'll understand these things. Uh, treason is when we uh, think God doesn't care about uh, the things, uh, or let me say it this way, we think God doesn't care about our sin. We think that God is okay with us shaming him. Uh, this is a type of treason against heaven. Uh, God's law is more than his nature. It is part of our testimony. Uh, the next thing is theft against heaven. This is a heart problem. All of these are problems of the heart. They have law, they have covenant, but they have lost a relationship with God. Their heart is not right. Uh, this is the withholding of their tithe and their offering. The Bible calls it first fruits. First fruits was a way of making everything you have holy. How can we, being spiritual and flesh, how can we make this life we live holy? Well, we do it partially through first fruits. You give to the Lord your first fruits and in return, he makes everything holy. He doesn't need it all. He just needs that which is an acknowledgement that he is the source. To withhold that is to say, I want your blessing, but I don't trust your promise. Uh, this is a risk in life. This is an error in our way. And finally, very quickly, uh, blasphemy is to speak uh, ill of God and to speak will ill of others in a way to injure God or to injure others. Let me say it this way. We cannot make God ugly. We cannot do unrighteousness and call it righteous. We cannot pronounce judgment on others and make God ugly when we don't know if it's judgment or not. Can I have a big amen? All of these are elements of error that are found within the house of Israel, and all of them are a spiritual rebuke against people who in many ways have been more diligent than any of us have ever been. They've been more careful following the law than any of us have ever been. They've been more focused upon keeping every dot and every, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I, more careful than we have been, and God says to them, you guys have missed the point. You have created a deep system, yes. It has all these rules, yes. But the issue is the heart of the matter. We have to keep our heart. Because if we don't keep our heart, being religious won't save us. We have to keep our heart. We have to repent when there's sin in our life. We have to ask God to make us strong when we're struggling with the right and with the wrong. We have to care about getting it right. Or what we have done is made God into a type of formula, a type of heavenly algorithm where as long as you have everything programmed right, then you're okay and there is no relationship. This is to miss what Christ died for. You see, Christ died that he might 
to have a relationship with you. Like was in the Garden of Eden where he walked with them and he talked with them in the cool of the day. God wants more than duty. God wants more than obligation. This is a spiritual love story. All right, stay with me. I read through these seven complaints that the Lord made against his people, and I wrestled for a while on how can I, how can I make him simple and put him in a type of description where they make sense to us. If we read them just kind of over the shoulder of history and read these words to people who worship different than us, they had different sacrifice system, uh, their redemptive process uh, was totally different. Uh, they offered lambs. Uh, we celebrate the Lamb of God for sinners slain. Uh, different. If we just read it, it's hard to apply it to us. So I, I started making some effort to try to put it in a context where we could get the gist of it, we could get the heart of it. And I, I, I really wrestled with the difficulty of making it simple. How do, you, how do you ensure that you're getting the heart of God right? How do you ensure you're keeping the faith, so to speak? How do you ensure you're guarding your heart? I want to do that. I, I know you do too. Um, and I, in this process of reading, I spent a couple days thinking and reading, trying to take these complaints that the Lord made against his people, saying you're getting it wrong, and, and, I, and just asking the Lord. And a lot of times when I'm studying, I, I end up praying different. Uh, some of you guys would disappointed if you heard me pray when I'm studying because a lot of times I'll ask a question of God and then I'll just kind of sit and meditate and I'll ask the Lord what 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 how do we get this wrong and then I just kind of sit and meditate and sometimes sometimes the spirit will nudge my spirit and I'll have some insight and I'll try to bring that to you but that's like a process of my pursuing what the word of the Lord would say to us in this hour and in this time and I realized in this process of asking the Lord, Lord, how do we make, how do I put, make it easier to understand? How do I make it practical? Uh, the, the ways in which we can miss you and we can replace spiritual life with carnal religion. We can replace your presence with a system. We can replace the pursuit of your glory in our life with kind of a, a, a religious order that serves us well and reassures us well. But rather than us serving you, we've created a religion to serve us. And I spent a lot of time praying about this, and I, uh, on, on Friday, it, it kind of struck me. I don't remember exactly the moment, but it kind of began to settle upon me that this has already been done. Uh, making all of these complaints against the people who got it wrong into a simple spiritual manifesto of how to get it right has already been done. And you're dying to know who did it and when, and I'm dying to tell you, I'll tell you who did it. And when? Well, his name was Jesus. And when he did it, was at the Sermon on the Mount. You're like, hmm, consequences. Think, what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay. Jesus is going to give explanation on how to get religion right with the teaching, the preaching, the, the metaphors, and the parables of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see this very clearly if possible. The Sermon on the Mount makes practical the question of how should we serve God. The Sermon on the Mount makes practical the issue of how would I know if I'm doing it wrong and how would I know if I'm doing it right? The Sermon on the Mount 
makes practical, living examples of people who are getting it wrong and a clear way to which the Lord invites us all to walk. And it is so strange to our ears and it is so challenging to our religious systems that for 2,000 years we have been left with the weight of these words and a sense of indescriptable awe at the profound depth that they represent. And so Jesus says words that are beyond our formulas and beyond a type of religious calculus where we get to make a formula that reassures us and lets the rest of the world know they're not quite as good as us. Here you see these words that cut to the heart of the problem. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus could have said, Blessed are those who are blessed, because they can build another barn and fill it full of grain. But Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. He could have said, Blessed are those who have joy in their life but he turned our presumptions upside down and said blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted he could uh, he says blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth he could have said blessed are those who keep my law for they shall be saved but that's not really what he said he said blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall shall be filled he could have said blessed are those who follow in all my statutes and keep all my laws but that's not what he said he said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness Uh, he could have said uh, blessed are those who live blamelessly but instead he said blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy he could have said blessed are those who spend a lifetime studying my law but instead he said blessed are uh, the pure in heart for they shall see God he could have said blessed are those who are zealous to fight for truth but instead he said blessed are the peacemakers For they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Watch this. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. What was the calling of the prophets? The prophets were sent to people who were uh, fanatical about keeping law. And the prophet says, hey guys, you missed the heart of it. Your heart is the problem. The prophets go to people who are fanatical about observing the tiniest details of this and not that. And the prophets say, you're missing the heart of it. You have this layer of righteousness under which you have hidden great injustice. This layer of goodness under which you have embraced great 
spiritual rebellion. You have this thin veneer of goodness under which you are entertaining deep, profound spiritual rebellion and the veneer will not save you. And they didn't like that message. Why? Because they had this religious system and it wasn't about serving God. It was about serving themselves. It was about reassuring themselves. It was about making themselves, man, I'm one of the good people. And there was no trembling in their heart asking themselves, Lord, am I still asking? Am I still knocking? Am I still seeking? You see, the heart is the end of the matter. And we are all of us challenged to keep our heart. We keep our heart. You don't let just anything grow in your heart. You don't let just any attitude live in your your heart. You don't let just any philosophical influence take uh, root in your heart. You don't just listen to anybody who has an idea. You take care to tend to your heart. Why? Because your heart is where you're going to experience life. Even when God gives you eternal life, he's going to do it in your heart. And if you don't keep your heart, it will turn the things that are beautiful of God into something that is ugly. And it will transform that which is of heaven into that which serves the earth. And it'll be so anti-Christ that when Christ comes, you'll feel threatened and you'll need to kill him in order to remind yourself you're one of the good people. Mmm, how about them apples? Lord, help us all. I don't preach this as a judge. I preach this as a co-believer right beside you, kneeling in the presence of God saying, I want to keep my heart right with you. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus makes practical the authority of the gospel, the revelatory authority of the gospel. We study for a lifetime and end up calling it epistemology. (laughs) It's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus makes practical spiritual community spiritual covenant community we study for a lifetime and call it ecclesiology in the sermon on the mount jesus makes practical the destiny of his people the purpose of his kingdom the historical destiny of the church Uh, we study it for a lifetime and call it eschatology but the issue is an issue of the heart the issue is in your heart if you are pursuing him in your heart if you're seeking to know him in your heart if there is a trembling in his presence then you have an opportunity to host him and experience the eternal life that he has died for you to possess can i have a big first church amen Jesus will say and I'm almost done in fact musicians you can come Jesus will uh, warn us in the Sermon on the Mount how this will feel Uh, he's going to tell us that it's going to seem like by living this way we're choosing a narrow way not a broad way now I know us preachers when we preach the narrow way and the broad way uh, we tend to preach it in terms of sin like you know if you choose the narrow way that means you show up at church with your Bible under your arm and if you choose the broad way that means you hit all the clubs in town Um, it's not really about sin it's about a way of knowing God read the Sermon on the Mount he's contrasting two ways of knowing God it's not between saints and sinners it's not between righteous and unrighteous it's between two groups of people who both think they're righteous two groups of people who both think they are serving God two groups of people who both think they are right 
And Jesus is saying one of them is the way to God and one of them isn't. He's pointing to the Pharisees and saying, when you pray, don't do it like that. Because you turn spirituality into some type of a status competition. You've destroyed the heart of it. Jesus gives you lists of things you should not use to testify of his kingdom. And they are things that illustrate just how spiritual you are. You should not go around telling people how much you pray to manifest the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' words, not mine. You should not go around telling people how much you give to manifest the kingdom of God. You should not go around moaning and telling, oh my God, I've been fasting for six days and my belly button's falling off. You should not do that because that doesn't touch people. That doesn't reach people. It doesn't change people. Jesus points at this group of so-called righteous people and says, don't do it like that. But doing it this way, where your testimony is practical and not of self and of what you've done and how good you are, but your testimony is of how great God is. That's the right way to do it. To live this way is going to feel like uh, you're choosing a narrow way that few people find. People cannot help but being attracted to using religion to broadcast themselves or using religion to exalt themselves. It's so fundamental. They just can't stand it. It's going to feel like a narrow way to try to be deeply authentic with real prayer and real generosity and real worship, but not go around bragging about yourself over it. That's going to feel like a narrow way. Well, we're in some deep waters here today. I apologize, but this is the result of Bible study in the Bible. But if you live this way, if you live this way, uh, you're going to have this influence in your world, and it's going to be twofold. On one hand, it's going to be like salt. You're going to preserve the kingdom of God in your world when you live this way. Number two, it's going to have the illuminative quality of light. You're going to show other people what real Christians look like. And so we are all of us challenged to a life that is called beatitude life. (laughs) The beatitudes, the beatitude believers demonstrate a righteousness. When we live this way, Jesus lets us know this righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the religious. But it has this simplicity to it. It has this ability to let God be God and not to toil and spin. And this is a righteousness that supersedes all of the robes of the religious and this testimony that the beatitudes bring in our life shines as practical good works of testimony and the lord will give them to us in the sermon on the mount he gives us practical areas of life and love and marriage and truth and justice and reconciliation and all of this lived testimony gives glory to god In the meantime, there's a lot of things that's very tempting for us to do that we cannot do. We must be freed from bondage to materialism. We must be freed from competing loyalties. No man can serve two masters. We must be freed from self-righteousness. We must be freed from false guilt. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus sums it all up to say, if you live this way, if you do this, it is the sum of all the law and all the prophets. And finally, this is the way to have stability in your life. Living this way, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. 
And when the storm wind blows and the waves dash against the house, it is strong because it's built upon a rock. Uh, So we have to keep our hearts. I'm almost done. Right religion is the result of us keeping our hearts and worrying about it and caring about it and reviewing our choices and reviewing our actions and asking ourselves what kind of a testimony are we given? What kind of a Christ are we communicating? Religion is the story of the human, uh, shall we say, reach for the intangible. Jesus does more than that. He does not allow you to settle on a system whereby you are finished, but he invites you to a journey that you must pursue. We must ask, we must seek, we must knock, but if we will, he will open to us. In fact, he'll go one further than that, and he will stand at the door and knock. And if we will receive, we open, and he will come in to us. Because right relationship with God is more of a spiritual love story than it is a philosophical or theological calculus or formula. It is the pursuit of God's presence. And I want to show you the care whereby we must guard our hearts. That's what this series is going to be about. We're going to talk next week about if we had a dashboard for our heart. If we had a dashboard for our heart, what would the red lights be? If we had a dashboard for our heart and something was going wrong, what would be the red lights that flashed in our heart? We'll talk about that next week. But I want you to see the care that we need to hold our hearts with. We must keep our hearts. We must protect them. Because if we do not, then our values will morph to the values of the world. Our interests will come to the same as the world. Our heart will end up in the same place as the world. We'll still have a thin veneer of fake righteousness on top of it. But in the inner places, we will have lost the presence of God. I'm going to read a passage, 1 Chronicles chapter number 23. I'm going to read it verse number 28. And again, if if you download my notes off the website, all of these are in your notes. Uh, So... 1 Chronicles 23, verse number 28, the work of the Levites. Everyone know what the Levites were? The Levites kept the house of the Lord. The Levites' role was to keep the house of the Lord. There were the sons of Aaron, the direct tribe of Aaron. This is where the priesthood comes from. Aaron was assisted by a larger tribe of people known as the Levites. So you had priests and Levites. So these were the work. This was the work of the Levites. It was to assist the priests, the descendants of Aaron, as they served at the house of the Lord. The Levites also took care of the courtyards and side rooms. The Levites helped perform the ceremonies of purification. But you note that each one of these things is highly detailed. There's a right way to do it. They served in many other ways in the house of the Lord. They were in charge of the sacred bread that was set out on the table. The choice flour for the grain offerings. The wafers made without yeast. The cakes cooked in olive oil and the other mixed breads. 
they were also responsible to check all the weights and all the measures. And every morning and evening, they stood before the Lord to sing songs of thanks and praise to Him. They assisted with the burnt offerings that were presented to the Lord on Sabbath days at new moon celebrations and at all the appointed festivals. The required number of Levites served in the Lord's presence at all times, following all the procedures they had been given. And so, under the supervision of the priests, the Levites watched over the tabernacle and the temple and faithfully carried out their duties of service at the house of the Lord. I want you to see these people that are focused on doing things right, the proper care of the house of the Lord. And I want you to hear me say that is exactly how you should care for your heart. Just as the Levite would say, no, we don't do that here. There's some things you should be saying over your heart. No, we don't think that way. Just as the Levite said, this is how we worship, and that's not how we worship. You, in your heart, you have the job of the Levite, except you do not keep a temple. You keep your heart. And when you keep it right, it becomes a house that welcomes the presence of the Lord. But He will not dwell in a soiled house. We keep our hearts. Keep thine heart with diligence because out of it flows the issues of our lives. Stand with me all across the house. Our worship team is coming right now. We're going to stand in the presence of the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply aware that this service is a profound invitation to a certain care in our devotion, our daily devotion. I'm very much aware that a message like this is very much an invitation to the manner in which we are praying, the manner in which we are studying the Word, the manner in which we are taking care that our heart is right. That is not an accident. That is absolutely intentional. Because if we miss the proper care of our hearts, the thin veneer of churchiness is not going to be what saves us. Is that fair? The thin veneer of an outward observance is not going to save us. We need to we need to clean the hearth of our heart. And we need to sweep the floor of our house. And we need to make sure that we have lit the candle. <laughs> and we need to make sure that we have prepared the Lord's Supper, if you'll let me use that image. And we need to make sure that we haven't lost any of the silver. <laughs> uh, this is all Luke 15, by the way. We, we, we want to make sure everything is right in this house. And then in the morning and in the evening, we want to stand in worship to the Lord. And we want to say, this is your house, O oh God. My heart, your home. This is your house, O oh Lord. I'm going to keep it just like the Levites kept your house. I'm going to keep it clean just as the people of God honored the tabernacle and honored uh, the holy place. I'm going to keep my heart clean.
clean. And if I don't do that, my thin veneer of religiosity is not going to cut it because a formula can never replace a relationship with God. And we here at this church are hungry to know you, oh God. We want our hearts to be right. Church, pray this with me right now. Lord, everything that's in our heart that's unclean, would you wash it from us, oh God. Every sin of the flesh, every doubt, every bad spirit and attitude and spiritual rebellion that has taken root within us, oh God, would you wash us here today? Would you let this house be remade? Would you let it be cleansed? And then we stand with Solomon and we ask, would you dwell with men? Would you dwell with men? And just as fire fell on that day and filled the house of God and they couldn't even minister to the people. The 120 priests couldn't even minister. So on the day of Pentecost, the people had prepared their heart and they had worshipped you and it's been days in prayer and spiritual waiting and fire fell from heaven and 120 people could not minister because the Holy Spirit spoke through them and they became your dwelling place for all generations. And we as a church want our heart to be your dwelling place in Jesus' name. I'm going to sing this old hymn. I want it to be part of our altar. I want to invite any of those, those of you who are comfortable doing so to feel free to step out and come stand in the front. Uh, we have this space down here. We don't have to get super close to each other, but we can come forward. If you want to stay where you are, you're welcome to do that. If you want to kneel where you are, you are welcome to do that. But we must apply the Word of God to our heart, the Word of God to our life. If you're a guest, a visitor, if it's your first time, thank you for worshiping with us. We hope you felt at home here. We want you to. to. If you need to be dismissed, you can be dismissed. But for a few moments here, we're going to turn this whole house into a prayer service. And we're going to join with the worship team and we're going to sing together. Sing this old song with me right now.
for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.